Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark chapter 9, verse 11 through verse 29. Mark 9, 11 through verse 29. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Mark 9, beginning in verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how, but how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And wherever, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. He answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it. So as we are talking and thinking, we have a tendency to universalize. That is, we take what is specific and particular and apply it across the board. If it's true for us, then it's true for everyone. And our favorite word for this exaggeration is all and its various forms. Always, never, everyone, no one, totally. Just pay attention to the media and you regularly hear this sort of hyperbole. Everyone is terrified. If we don't do something, all is lost. That person or that institution never gets it right. This is, this is exaggerated literalism. And sometimes we can imitate the world around us thinking that all always means all. But this can trip us up when we come to scripture, which uses all often enough. And yet in the Bible, all does not always mean all. 
rather like a proper exaggeration, is not intended to be understood literally. To read a hyperbolic all literally is to read it wrongly. And so we come to well-known all verse, which under a literalistic yoke has bruised and beat up the faith of many. And yet, with the help of our Lord, his grace is given here not to tear down faith, but to console and build up our weak faith. So if you've ever uh, hiked a mountain, then you, then you know that coming down can be even harder. As you go up with lungs burning, you think this is the worst, and you dream of the hike back down. But then you start your descent and you realize it's murder on your knees and your ankles. And so it is with the three favorite disciples. Peter, James, and John are sweating more on the way down from the Mount of Transfiguration than heading up. For their heads are throbbing with unanswered questions and one in particular. What does this mean that the Son of Man must be raised from the dead? For them, the resurrection is a square peg and the Christ is a round hole. The two just do not fit. Thus, they muster the bravery to ask Jesus a question. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, the logic from the Son of Man's resurrection to Elijah's priority arrival may not jump off the page for us, but it's here That is, the disciples are thinking of this passage from Malachi. There it says, Elijah will come before the Lord and the great day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord ushers in the everlasting age to come by means of the resurrection of the dead. And so when they hear resurrection, they can think only of the final day resurrection unto unceasing glory. Also, it is clear that they don't think Elijah has come yet. For them, resurrection only spells glory, and the great Elijah must come first. So how can Jesus be raised up if Elijah has not graced the horizon? Therefore, their confusion is understandable, considering what they know. And this is a fine question. Therefore, Jesus answers it truthfully and informatively. First, he confirms that they're right about Elijah. The scribes are correct that Elijah must appear on the scene first. But then he points to something else said in the Old Testament. How is it written? Jesus brings to mind the promise of other Old Testament passages beside this one from Malachi about Elijah. And these passages predict the suffering and the scorning of the Son of Man. And this move is profound and important for us. For here, Jesus corrects their selective proof texting. That is, the disciples can think of but one passage about Elijah, the day of the Lord, and glory. And this text suits the disciples' preferences and biases. Our Lord, though, says, yes, that text is true, but what about all these other verses about suffering? And this can be a problem for us. We highlight the verses of the Bible that we like, that support our agenda, and we ignore the verses that do not fit with what we think. We can create a theology in our own image by cherry-picking just the right verses 
and pretending that the inconvenient verses do not exist. And so Jesus rattles the tunnel vision of the disciples. But the Old Testament also says the Son of Man must suffer. Now, Jesus does not refer to a specific Old Testament text here. Rather, he puts his finger on a theme or a motif. And this is the persecuted prophet pattern found hundreds of times in the Old Testament. That is, this is the reoccurring event in Israel's history of them rejecting and despising the prophets sent to them by God. Just as the rebels of Israel of old abused the prophets, so they will also oppress the Son of Man. In fact, the word for contempt here even echoes Psalm 22, scorned by men, despised by people. Therefore, the Old Testament doesn't just speak about the Son of Man's glory, but also his suffering. In fact, this pattern of tribulation even applies to Elijah. As Jesus clarifies, Elijah has come, and they treated him as they wished, as it was written. Here, he identifies John the Baptist as the Elijah to come, and he points to John's persecution and execution as a fulfillment of Scripture. For remember how much the first Elijah was scorned and tormented by Ahab and Jezebel. Well, the same had to be for the coming Elijah. And if John, as the forerunner of the Messiah, suffered, then Jesus must also taste the same fate. Our Lord employs the death of John as a prophecy for his own death, and all according to Scripture. Hence, Jesus brings a deeper understanding to the disciples and to us. It's not just Elijah and then glory. Instead, Elijah had to be mistreated as John was, and the Son of Man must first fulfill the suffering and dying servant of the Lord, which is why he can be raised from the dead. Again, the Lord here is helping his disciples wrap their minds around his suffering that is so alien to them. But now that they are down from the mountain, the four of them can rejoin the other nine apostles in training. Yet we soon learn that the nine got themselves into big trouble while Jesus was away. They come into view, and it doesn't look pretty. A large crowd encircles the nine disciples, and the scribes are questioning and arguing with them. This does not look good. What did the disciples get themselves into? They're like a bunch of rowdy kids. You can't turn your back for a second without them messing something up. Thus, when the crowd sees Jesus, they're relieved. They sprint up to him, finally dad's home, and he can fix things. Though at this point, we still don't know what's wrong. What's all this commotion about? Why are the scribes picking on the disciples? And so Jesus starts to probe only to meet hesitancy. What are you arguing about with them? Now, this inquiry is either directed at the disciples or the scribes, and yet neither of them answer. It's like Jesus asked a brother and sister why they're arguing, and they just try to plead the fifth. They say nothing. 
But then the five-year-old little brother tattletales. So here, some rando from the crowd volunteers. But this is no brown-nosing meddler. The debate may be academic for the scribes and the disciples. It's just an abstraction for them. But this guy has skin in the game. Teacher, I brought my son to you. This is not just another face in the crowd, but it is a dad. This is a father in distress. My boy has a mute spirit that is violent. It will seize my son, toss him down like a rag doll. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid like rigor mortis. This dad is suffering with a boy who is tormented and disabled. Now, from our point of view, this boy has some sort of epilepsy. But the text and our Lord links this bodily ailment to an impure spirit, which we have seen is linked to dark, magical, and idolatrous practices. His seizures are a manifestation of a deeper spiritual sickness. Yet this distraught dad brought his boy to Jesus to be healed, only he got the disciples and they were not able to help. This is like making an appointment for a miracle doctor only to get his intern. Thus, the disciples are helpless. They couldn't punch their way out of a wet paper bag. This, then, is what the argument is about. How can they heal the boy? Why couldn't the disciples get it right? Yet as the disciples and the scribes trade raised voices, the father remained in his pain. The boy was still tormented. The son became a way for them to just win the argument instead of actually trying to help the kid. Thus, the dad lays out the agony of his son to make clear that this is not an abstraction for armchair theology. Though our Lord's response here catches us unaware. He breaks into a lament, a complaint. First, he chides the whole generation for being faithless. All the people are unbelieving. They all suffer from a major faith deficiency. They're anemic in the faith. Then he laments with impatience. How long must I be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Now, this seems initially too a bit too human for our Lord. If Jesus is perfect, Can he get frustrated like this? And yet it's precisely because Jesus is perfect that our sinful slowness is so frustrating. Our Lord's lament here reveals how he suffered just by living on earth with our unbelieving selves. And it shows how there is ample evidence for our faith. Our jaundiced faith is not a a problem with God. It is a problem with us. Nevertheless, Jesus will help the boy. He calls for the boy to be brought, and then something odd happens. The impure spirit sees in the boy sees Jesus and tries to resist. The demon convulses the boy into a violent seizure, and he's rolling around in the dirt and foaming horribly. This, though, is not the oddity. Demons resisting our Lord is expected, It's futile, but it doesn't stop the demon from trying. Rather, what is weird is that as the boy is apoplectic, 
Jesus gets chatty. How long has the boy been like this? Jesus pauses to get a medical history on the kid. Now, you would think that a convulsing boy is an emergency. It's time for action, not bibliography. Never, it nearly seems cruel that Jesus talk with the dad while the boy rise in agony at their feet. And yet, by this question, we get a deeper plunge into the concrete pain of the son and the father. The kid has been possessed from childhood. He has been this way nearly all his life. And the spirit is murderous. It thrashes the boy into the fire. It flings him into water to drown him. This child has burns and scars all over his body. Can you imagine living like this as a parent? Every time your kid has a seizure, your son cuts, burns, or hurts himself. Talking about oppressive evil. The boy wears scars on his body, but the dad suffers the injuries to his heart. And yet the dad makes an interesting remark. In his pain, he missteps. He says, if you're able, please help. He's not sure if Jesus can help. The disciples didn't have the skill. Maybe such a demon is not within the expertise of Jesus. He doesn't know if our Lord has the right tools. And Jesus does not let this slide. He retorts, if you are able, Jesus flips the words, the man's words back upon him. And to repeat the father, Jesus then pinpoints what needs to be corrected. He also changes the referent of you. That is, this is not about me being able, dear dad, but if you are able. The father posited that the problem might lay with Jesus. And Jesus corrects. No, the problem is with you. The issue here is not the Lord's ability, but belongs to the Father with humans. And he locates what the issue is. All things are possible for those who believe. Now here's a verse that is catnip for Christian greeting cards. It is used as a pious platitude to give hope to struggling saints. This has become a celebration, a, a cheerleading chant to rally the people from so, some, quote, noble cause. All is inflated as big as the human imagination. If you'll just believe, you can fly like Superman in poverty and raise the dead. Fantastical wonders are dangled and all the burden is rested on your faith. Just believe it and claim it. And yet too often, what is used as hope, as wings to fly, ends up crushing faith. Believing the saint leaps from the tall building to soar, only to end up on the pavement below. Thus it's good to ponder if this is actually what our Lord is saying. Is Jesus stating we can do miracles if we just believe enough? Well, to begin with, all is limited by context. Often, all is not universal. It's not a blank check, but it's restricted to smaller circles. 
And so in our narrative, all only points to the healing of the boy. This is the only problem at hand. There's nothing else here about miracles in general, about getting rich or curing some worldly ill. Next, Jesus' purpose here is to encourage the faith of the grieved and doubting father. The dad said, if you're able, Jesus, he was skeptical about our Lord's ability and willingness. So to fuel his faith, Jesus responds, if you believe, there is no limit to my ability. All things focus on Jesus' power. And our Lord meets his objective here as the man confesses both his faith and his weak faith. The dad cast himself on Jesus in faith, and at the same time, he feels the inadequacy of his faith. And this is helpful in two ways. First, it shows that faith is about looking outside of itself. Jesus improves the vision of the dad's faith to look only at Jesus. In popular usage, all things being possible for faith is used to make one more introspective about your faith. It tells you to look inward at your faith. Do I really believe? But when faith looks in the mirror, it withers. Indeed, this is backwards, as faith is about gazing and resting on something outside, in Jesus. So Jesus lifts up the dad's faith to peer into our Lord's ability that has no limits. All things are possible is the correction to the fathers, if you are able. Second, by the dad confessing, I believe, help my unbelief, this is profound as it shows us that faith is not just an on-or-off thing. We tend to think of faith like a light switch. It's up or down, and there's no dimmer switch. But scripture is not so simplistic about faith. It isn't so black and white. Instead, faith is more like humidity in the air. Sometimes you feel it and others you can't, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. Indeed, like humidity, our faith can change like the weather, from day to day, stronger or weaker. And Peter is a good example of this. Ever since he followed Jesus, you cannot call Peter an unbeliever. And yet Peter keeps pulling the most unbelieving flub-ups. Thus, the dad shows the perceptive humility to confess his faith and at the same time to admit that his faith is weak, ever in need of help, ever wrestling with unbelief. A faith that boasts that it's strong has just exposed that it's struggling with unbelief. And our Lord approves the dad's weak faith by healing the boy. He now commands the impure spirit to be gone and to never come back. And after one final tizzy, the demon is gone and the boy looks dead. Jesus, though, grabs his hand and raises him up. What Jesus does here looks a lot like a resurrection. The boy went from being uh, enslaved to the evil one to being like dead to being lifted up by the hand of Jesus.
all things are possible for Jesus, this is filled in by resurrection. His power is unlimited in conquering, unlimited in conquering Satan, in defeating death, and granting new life in his hands. Yet after this gripping healing and dialogue with the dad, the disciples find a private place to question further. They want to know why they couldn't cast out the demon. Jesus had given them authority to heal and cast out demons previously. Why was their power not working on this day? But our Lord's answer doesn't seem that helpful. He says this kind can only be driven out by prayer. Their problem was prayer. This is a head-scratcher. For nothing in context has mentioned prayer. Jesus didn't even pray himself. If prayer was so crucial, why didn't our Lord model it before he cast out the demon? Well, faith and prayer are connected. In many ways, prayer is faith in action as it believingly petitions God to help. And so in our story, it's the dad that prayed. He prayed to Jesus, help my unbelief. But there's more about this prayer, which actually isn't addressed in our passage. Technically, Mark raises a question here that he only answers later in his gospel. First, this phrase, all things are possible, shows up two more times in Mark's gospel. The next time is in chapter 10, when the issue of salvation comes up. There, the disciples cry that salvation is impossible for humans, and Jesus says yes, but all things are possible for God. Therefore, doing the impossible is focused upon our salvation. And the final time this all is possible line is used is in the Garden of Gethsemane. There we do find our Lord in prayer, praying like he never prayed before. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yes, Jesus prays to his all-powerful Father, but this prayer goes unanswered. For the cup was the cross, and there was no removing the cross. Thus, why is prayer key? Because prayer is the submission of faith to not being answered or to being answered in some other way. Prayer understands that the Lord will help, but his help does not remove all suffering. Thus, our passage opened with Jesus highlighting the necessity of him to suffer. The Son of Man had to feel the agony of the cross before he was raised. Moreover, Jesus lets the little boy suffer a little longer as he talked with the dad, and then he healed him like a resurrection. So Jesus shows that his power saves us through faith and through prayer with suffering. That faith, the faith that saves does not bring an easy life, but through it God gives us the patient suffering of prayer where we submit to the unsearchable will of the Father. Therefore, Jesus lifts up the eyes of our faith to focus on his all-powerful love 
to save us on the cross. He reminds us that our faith is always weak, our unbel- uh, that unbelief is always a thorn in our side. And Jesus teaches us that our faith is about the manner of prayer, of submitting to the Lord's will, to answer or not to answer, to be quick or slow to answer, to do what we expect or to do the unexpected. For it was by this same submission that Jesus endured the cross to make heaven a free gift for us. Thus may the Lord always aid our weak faith. May our faith always look outside of itself to rest in Christ alone. And may our faith ever be praying that with humble submission, we pray believingly, thy will be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. For his will leads to his glory and our eternal good in him. Amen.